All right. Would you take the Word of God with me tonight and turn to the book of Exodus and uh, chapter 12. Exodus and uh, chapter 12. In Exodus chapter 12, we, um, is the, we find ourselves in the, the great chapter where the Passover was not only instituted, uh, but we see the Passover performed. In the midst of this chapter, as we'll see tonight, is the tenth plague. Now, it seems that we've spent a lot of time uh, going through the plagues, and then uh, I guess the last uh, four or five weeks, we've been spending some time looking at uh, the announcement Uh, the coming of the last plague. We've looked at uh, God describing to Moses uh, the Passover, uh, the selection of the lamb, the slaying of the lamb, then the feast of unleavened bread seven days after uh, the Passover. And uh, then finally Moses communicates that to the children of Israel. And we we looked at that passage when he uh, communicates that to them and they're going to implement the Passover. And now we're we're coming to the point in uh, point in the chapter where we see the tenth plague, and it's it's a short, it's a short uh, portion of scripture. But I, I want to spend some time on this tenth plague, and so notice with me Exodus chapter twelve. Uh, we're going to begin reading in verse twenty nine, and uh, read down to verse thirty two. So Exodus chapter twelve. We're going to read verse twenty nine. Um, I know you just sat down, but let's stand again for the reading of God's Word. We um, started doing this just a few weeks ago, and I, as, I've, um, as I've mentioned on the, the first week we uh, did that is, um, you know, we want to develop and maintain reverence for the Lord and for His Word. Uh, the book of Psalms says that God, uh, He upholds His Word above His name. That's, that's interesting. I think uh, the importance of that is because many people will say, uh, Lord, but do not the things that the Lord says. And so... Uh, if we're going to worship the Lord, then we're going to have to give reverence to what He says. Uh, we can't say, Lord, Lord, call Him Lord, without any desire and acknowledgement to submit to His Word and say, Lord, speak to us. And so uh, we do that. That's a good habit to have. But I'll remind us every once in a while that we don't just do this as a ritual or as a habit, uh, but I hope that uh, our attention is, is on the Lord. And so uh, notice Exodus 12, verse 29. God's Word says, And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, For there was not an house where there was not one dead. And he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise up and get you forth from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as ye have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as ye have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And the Egyptians were urgent upon the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We be all dead men. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for your word and for this portion of scripture. And uh, Lord, I, I, I ask that you would help us as we consider the narrative of the ten plagues and the point where we are to... Uh, Lord, be appropriate as we think about the ten plagues, that we would not be misguided, that we would not see you as an unjust God, uh, but that we would truly learn the things that we need to learn about you, but also about 
human nature, about mankind, and how you deal with us. And so we ask your blessing on this evening and this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. By way of introduction here, we come to uh, the last plague in the midst of chapter 12. And if we uh, look back in throughout, uh, I guess since Exodus chapter 4, really Exodus chapter 2, how, how do we get here? I mean, it seems that we're coming here. This is, this is the point. The portion we read, this is the point that's going to bring about the deliverance out of Egyptian bondage. Uh, but let's look back at where it started. If you would turn back with me while you hold your place here in Exodus 12, turn with me to Exodus chapter 2. Uh, as you have your place there, Exodus chapter 2, remember what the Word of God says at the end of chapter 2, Exodus 2 verse 23. God's Word says, And it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, and with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. And so we see here that God looked down on the children of Israel, and that is repeated uh, a number of times. It's repeated to, to Moses. But the point is this began with uh, God's uh, compassion for the people. He, he saw their sorrow. Uh, he goes on to, uh, in chapter 3, verse 7, The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land unto a land, uh, uh, unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And so uh, this uh, idea of deliverance began in the heart of God. Uh, they were in Egyptian bondage and God saw, He heard, and He has come down to deliver them. In uh, verse 10 of chapter 3, God then raises up a leader to do what he wants to do. Verse 10, he speaks to Moses, he says, Come now therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So we see that this work began in the heart of God. But then God, in his work, he chooses human instrumentality. Now, why does God don't do that? I don't know. He just does. We who are imperfect have the opportunity to represent a perfect God. Moses, who was, uh, we could say based on what he says, untalented, unable, fearful, God wants to use him. That's a great source of comfort for us today. If God could use Moses... He can also use us. And so it began in the heart of God, and then He commissioned Moses. By the way, in the New Testament, we may not have the work that Moses had, but in the New Testament, the Bible says we are laborers together with God. We are all laboring with God. That's a privilege. And then we see that God issues a number of, a number of promises. Go with me to Exodus chapter 6. And notice with me in verse 6. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, the Bible says, Wherefore I say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord. By the way, that's always a good thing to be reminded of. He's going to issue promises, but before he issues promises, he reminds them of who he is. Because the promises of God are dependent on his person. And so he says, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And I will rid you out of their bondage. And I will redeem you with a stretched out arm. And with great judgments. And I will take you for me for a people. And I will be to you a God, and ye shall be, and ye shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you in unto the land concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it you for an heritage. I am the Lord. So God says, I want you to know, here are some promises. Before I issue the promises, I want you to know, I am the Lord. Now here are some promises. And so I believe it's seven times God says, I will. 
There is no doubt what God says He will do, He will do. And then as He issues all the promises, He says again, I am the Lord. And so we see that the work of God began in the heart of God. He uh, uses Moses as the human instrument that he is going to use to bring about uh, the deliverance from Egyptian bondage. By the way, it's not going to be the power, as we've seen, it was not the power of Moses. It was the power of God. And God issues a number of promises uh, that you can look back here. When those promises are done, they're not done at the end of the plan. They're given at the beginning. And so God, He... um, Uh, brings Moses and the children of Israel to an understanding as to what he is going to do based on his person. And now we reach the end in in Exodus chapter 12 and we see that God did what he said he would do. And we know that from this moment on that the demonstration of God's power is manifested in the first nine plagues. Remember plague number one, we've, we've come a long way. Plague number one is uh, though God turned the water to blood. Moses had been instructed to meet Pharaoh during his morning worship and to give him a warning. Then plague number two, there was uh, frogs everywhere. Uh, plague number three, there was the dust uh, throughout the land became lice on the bodies of men and of beasts. Uh, then uh, plague number four, we see the swarms of flies. Plague number five, we uh, noted the death of the livestock, the all of Egyptian wealth was was uh, destroyed. Uh, plague number six, we have the boils on the human body. And so in just a moment, all Egyptian worship had ceased. Remember, the priests, the Egyptian priests who worshiped the gods of the Egyptians could not go in the temples of their gods being having their bodies defiled. And so God... Uh, 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 brings about the boils to cease all Egyptian worship. Uh, And then, plague number seven, we see that the hail destroys and kills um, beasts out in the field, men out in the field, and the crops. And then God, in case there was anything left that was not destroyed by the hail in the fields, He sends forth the locusts to devour everything that remains So everything that is green in Egypt is gone. Nothing green in Egypt. And finally, there was a heavy and paralyzing darkness over the land. And uh, we come now and we, we, we see all those plagues and there's kind of a pause, at least in God's Word, when we find here that the last plague is announced. And so through the first nine plagues, it's important here that not a single Israelite was delivered from Egyptian bondage. Correct? Not one of them was delivered through the first nine plagues. It was not until the blood of the Lamb was shed that redemption was effected, and indeed as soon as it was shed, Israel marched with freedom. And so, uh, which uh, uh, brings us to the point of emphasizing the Lamb, which we know... Uh, the Bible says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that Christ is our Passover. And so the Old Testament uh, is a shadow of things to come, and the Passover is representative of Jesus Christ and His work of redemption, not from Egyptian bondage, but from the bondage of sin and death. Now we come here to the last plague after we've been through all of this journey and I'll make a number of concluding statements at the end of the message. But I want us to examine the text here and see what is going on here. There's just a few verses, but I believe here we can learn some important things. Notice verse 29 with me. And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. Uh, If you hold your place here, go back with me to chapter 11 because this was announced. Before it ever happened, God announced it to Moses and Moses to Pharaoh. Notice in Exodus 11 verse 5, uh, notice verse 4, And Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, about midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh 
that sitteth upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beast. I want you to notice here that he mentions here all the firstborn in the land are going to die. He mentions here the firstborn that sitteth on the throne. He mentions the firstborn that is in the dungeon, the firstborn of the maid servant, and all the firstborn of cattle and beast. Now, I want to ask here, because that's repeated again and again, the firstborn, the firstborn, the firstborn, what is significant, so significant about the death of the firstborn? Why the firstborn? Well, as we think about, not just here in our text, but the narrative of the ten plagues and even before the plagues began, we see here that the punishment of God in this tenth plague, the punishment of God was reciprocal. In other words, God is going to punish the Egyptians as they have punished the children of Israel. You say, well, how can you say that? Well, turn. I'm glad you asked that question. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 4. Notice Exodus chapter 4. God is speaking to Moses, and notice what He tells Moses in Exodus 4 and verse 21. And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand. But I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. And so we see here that this punishment is reciprocal. God tells Moses, you're going to tell Pharaoh to let Israel, my firstborn son, go. And that if he does not let my firstborn son go, that the judgment, the final judgment, will be that the firstborn of the Egyptian will also die. So we see that this punishment was reciprocal, but we also see that this punishment was suitable. And what I mean by that is that God, throughout, think about it, we're at plague number 10, but it's been nine plagues thus far. I personally believe that this particular plague was the most severe of all the plagues. You see, God, throughout the nine plagues, God left open the door of mercy. You see, this is what we really, I hope this is what we take away from this. I really hope that, you know, often people, they come to the Word of God, uh, many of them who are skeptics, they're not believers, but they, they criticize the Word of God and they say, well, look at what God did. And they point to moments like this when God exercises His judgment and judges a people and to, in their mind, in their finite mind, they think that that is unjust and so it is a criticism of God. But I think that by now we are fully aware that this is not a criticism of God. It's actually a way to show us how great, good, and merciful God is. Why? Well, because through it, it takes uh, really ten plagues to bring about the death of the firstborn. Uh, really up to this point, think about it, how merciful God has been. God, by His power, He could have stamped out the Egyptians on day one. But He did not do that. He would have the right to judge them because of their rebellion. You remember when uh, Jehovah God was introduced to Pharaoh, he says, uh, Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice? I will not let Israel go. Neither uh, I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. And, and so there's been a rebellion and a standing against Jehovah God who is all-powerful. God who had the power to just cut off all the Egyptians in a moment's notice has sent judgments. Remember, the blood, the water turned to blood only lasted for seven days. The frogs came, and then when Pharaoh appeared to Moses, the frogs died. And so every punishment that came, God sent judgment, but notice He did not eradicate the Egyptians. What is that? That's the mercy and the long-suffering of God. 
I hope we come away from those ten plagues and ask ourselves, because again, time and time again, Pharaoh, you remember, even at times, he said, all right, I'll let the people go. And then when Moses would leave the court, then he would change his mind. Even Moses, at least twice throughout the ten plagues, he told Pharaoh, I, I know you're, you're saying you're going to let us go, but you're not honest, you're not being sincere. And yet Pharaoh still rebelled against God. And so God's long-suffering However, what we learn here in Exodus 12 is that God's long-suffering does have limits. It does have limits. Uh, there is a time, yes, of judgment and where God is confronting, want them, wants a, a Pharaoh to repent. He wants a Pharaoh to humble himself before God, but it does not happen until here, the tenth plague. And so it's been a while, but what we learn is that God has been long-suffering, but that long-suffering does reach a limit. And by the way, so it is with the gospel that, that God is long-suffering, and that God is merciful, but there is coming a day of judgment. And so there is a limit to the long-suffering and the mercy of God. Why? Because sin must be punished. Because God is just and righteous and holy, he cannot abide sin. And so there were many appeals, by the way, we've seen many appeals on the part of Moses and Aaron, as well as even, think about it, a demonstration of the power of God before Pharaoh. <laughs> you remember, the, the people uh, of Egypt came to Pharaoh and they, they, they said to Pharaoh, Knowest thou not that Egypt is destroyed? That's how great the power of God was demonstrated in Egypt, that even everybody around Pharaoh acknowledged that we have never seen anything like this. We have never seen the, any power like this ever displayed. And uh, we come now to the tenth plague, the most severe plague, but the point I'm making is that the punishment here is not only reciprocal, but it is also a suitable uh, punishment. And by the way, God is righteous to punish. He is right and just to punish sin. And by the way, as we think of salvation, and this is just a, a reminder for us, uh, that there is a brand of Christianity that says, well, uh, uh, as if, you know, you can live as you please, God uh, overlooks your sin, your sin doesn't matter, because uh, Christ has died for all your sin. As if to say that God just overlooks your sin. No, God does not overlook sin. That's why He sent Christ. He sent Christ because he cannot overlook sin, and sin was punished in Christ. God doesn't forget sin or uh, 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 treat sin lightly. Just look to the cross. And so we see the punishment was reciprocal, it was suitable, but also third, the punishment was impactful. This is the firstborn. Now, uh, if you notice here all of the, uh, the, the, the times it is used... Um, the idea of the punishment would be to those who are the most powerful in the land, to those who are the least powerful. He says, from the throne to the dungeon, to the maid servant, to the beast, all the firstborn are going to die. And it's interesting to note, Psalm 105 verse 36 gives us a commentary on this particular plague and says this, Psalm 105 verse 36 he smote also all the firstborn in their land, the chief of all their strength. Ah, well, there it is. You see, God's punishment would have the greatest impact that any other judgment or punishment that God brought upon the Egyptians. Uh, Rawlinson describes it this way. He says, the law of firstborn prevailed in Egypt. As among most of the nations of antiquity, the monarchy was hereditary, and the eldest son was known as Urpa Sutan Sa, or hereditary crown prince. Estates would uh, descend to the eldest son, and in many cases, high dignities also. There was no severer blow could have been sent on this nation. If it were not to be annihilated, uh, then the loss in each house of the hope of the family, the firstborn 
was the parent's stay and the other children's guardian and protector. In other words, the firstborn represented everything that was majestic and powerful in the land of Egypt, and more specifically, the firstborn of Pharaoh. This indeed was the worst of all the plagues. Think about that son whom Pharaoh so cherished, the one born of the gods. That's what they would say. Uh, now uh, that son would lay in bed white and lifeless and limp. The heart and the will of Pharaoh would be broken because of this and his spirit of arrogance and resistance would give way to just a moment of humility and compliance. But we could say that God brings Pharaoh down to his knees. And so the idea of the judgment on the firstborn is significant, very significant. It is an attack, really, as we've made note on all the plagues, it is an attack on an Egyptian god, namely the Pharaoh is a god to the Egyptian. We come now to in Exodus uh, 12, verse 30, And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Now, by the way, we come to this point, and let, let us just be reminded that, that this is not a surprise. The idea of this great sorrow and this cry was already told to Pharaoh. Moses had already said that to Pharaoh. Go back with me in chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11 and verse 6. Notice with me. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. We see here several things about this sorrow. As I mentioned here, we see the warning of this sorrow. Pharaoh was not without warning. Pharaoh was not, when he, he got to the place on that evening at midnight when all the firstborn died in the land of Egypt and there begins to be a great cry throughout the land. He can't say, I didn't know this was going to happen. He was warned of the sorrow. We not only see the warning of this sorrow, but we also see the severity of this sorrow. In Exodus eleven six, 6, he says that there's going to be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it anymore. Uh, so think about the severity of this sorrow. Uh, he, uh, by the way, this is what, that's in chapter 11, when Moses announced it to Pharaoh. He says, uh, out of the entire past history of the great nation of Egypt, out of all of its past history, You've never had a national sorrow like you will have in that day, nor will afterward will there be any sorrow that is greater proportionately to the sorrow that you will experience if you continue to reject God just one more time. And so we see that this cry would be uh, no doubt uh, severe. We see that there would be none like it, not in the past, uh, nor like it anymore in the future. In chapter 12, verse 30, he says here that there was, um, there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Uh, Pharaoh would, in his palace, he would sit above uh, probably one of the largest cities in Egypt and in his temple. Uh, you could probably hear as uh, when uh, the clock, uh, there was no clocks at that time, but um, well, they, have a, they had a concept of time, but when midnight hits, and then you begin to hear the, the wells and the sorrow and the cry all throughout the land of Egypt, and here's Pharaoh, no doubt awakened by the cries throughout the land of Egypt. Hearing this great well, by the way, that he was warned of. We see the warning of the sorrow, the severity of the sorrow, but we also see the escape of the sorrow. Can I, can I encourage us tonight that there was, there was an escape for the sorrow? There was a way. Remember in chapter 11, Moses had, had announced that if there is any house in all the land of Egypt 
that does not have the blood sprinkled on the doorpost, the firstborn in that house will die. That means that it, there was a way of escape from the sorrow, and the way of escape was through the blood. You see, they would not die, the firstborn would not die if the blood had been applied to the lamb. I'm reminding us tonight that God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. I was about to say, I will pass, I will pass over you. That's the song we sing it. I will pass over you. God did not look inside the house at the worthiness or the merit of those who resided in the house he looked outside the house to see if there was blood applied. It didn't matter who was inside as long as the blood had been applied. And so that was the escape of the sorrow. But by the way, it is clear to us now that Pharaoh did not heed that warning. He experienced the great sorrow, not only the great sorrow, the severity of the sorrow and he also ignored the escape of the sorrow. As we notice here in Exodus 12, as we continue reading in verse 31, and the Bible says here, And he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise up and get you forth from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as ye have said. Notice verse 32. Also take your flocks and your herds as ye have said, and be gone, and bless me also. So, we see here that he called for Moses and Aaron, the Bible says, by night. And said, so that same night, again, uh, midnight comes and uh, Pharaoh does not delay. He uh, sends messengers and uh, he says, get you out of, the, out of the land, both you and, your ch and the children of Israel. Now, isn't it interesting here that you remember Throughout this narrative, Pharaoh would repeat, he says, I will not let you go. I will not let the people go. And uh, if you remember, God had told Moses this, and God had made a promise to Moses. Turn back with me to Exodus chapter 6. Back in Exodus chapter 6, and notice verse 1. The Bible says, Then the, children, then the Lord said unto Moses, uh, Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand shall he let them go, and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. Now, if you remember, when we, we've, I've dealt with that throughout the narrative of the plagues, but remember, the request was what? Let us go three days journey in the wilderness and offer a sacrifice to the Lord and observe a feast unto the Lord. And the plan, by the way, was what? To come back. That was the agreement. By the way, that was a reasonable request. And you remember as we look at the narrative, uh, Moses, or, uh, Pharaoh tried to compromise with Moses. But the point as we see here is that God says, by the time I'm done with Pharaoh, it is not only that you will by force um, find deliverance, but Pharaoh himself is the one that's going to send you out. And not only will he send you out temporarily, he will send you out permanently. Isn't that interesting that the request all along was, let us go three days journey in the wilderness and offer a sacrifice, then we come back? And God says, I want you to know, by the time it's all said and done, He's going to send you out and you're not going to come back. He's going to thrust you out of the land altogether. And so, by the way, that's exactly what happens here. As we come now to Exodus chapter 12. He says, uh, notice with me in Verse 31, And he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise up and get you forth from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as ye have said. I like the words here. Notice the words, As ye have said. Now this would be a significant change. Notice again in verse 32, Also take your flocks and your herds, as ye have said. Why would Pharaoh say that? In other words, he makes it clear here. As ye have said. Exactly what you've asked for. Now notice here. Go back with me to chapter 8. You remember that Pharaoh had attempted a number of compromises? He was trying to, uh, you know, give the children of Israel a little bit of what they wanted, but not completely grant them their full request. Uh, notice in Exodus chapter 8. Uh, notice verse 25. 
<clears throat> this is after the flies, the swarms of flies, and Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go ye, sacrifice to your God in the land. And Moses said, It is not meet, to do, uh, uh, meet so to do, for we shall sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. Lo, shall we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, and will they not stone us? And so remember, Pharaoh has said, Well, don't go three days' journey in the wilderness. Do your sacrifices in the land of Egypt. And Moses said, well, we can't do that because what we do is an abomination to the Egyptians. Notice verse 27. Uh, we will go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as He commanded us, as, as, as He shall command us. And Pharaoh said, I will let you go, that ye may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only ye shall not go very far away. Entreat for me. So the first compromise was, do it in the land. Moses said, no, that's not what God said. Second compromise is, all right, you said three days journey, but I'll let you go, but don't go far away. No, God said three days journey. So there was two attempts at, prom at compromise. The first compromise offered by Pharaoh was, don't go very far. Compromise number two, go to chapter 10. Uh, Pharaoh attempted this again in Exodus chapter 10. Uh, notice verse 8. And Moses and Aaron were brought again unto Pharaoh, and he said unto them, Go serve the Lord your God, but who are they that shall go? And Moses said, We will go with our young and with our old, with our sons and with our daughters, with our flocks and with our herds. We will go, for we must hold a feast unto the Lord. And he said unto them, Let the Lord be so with you, as I will let you go, and your little ones look to it, for evil is before you. Not so. Go now, ye that are men, and serve the Lord, for that ye, ye did desire. And they were, were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. So compromise number two is Pharaoh said, only the men. Right? Because the agreement was, well, since you're coming back anyways, just go three days in the wilderness, uh, just the men. And notice at the end, he says that he, uh, he drove them out of, they were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. He didn't even let them reply. He gave them a compromise and then sent them away. Well, we know that that is not what God said. Compromise number three, notice chapter 10, verse 24. And Pharaoh called unto Moses and said, Go ye, serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be stayed, yet the little ones also be with you. And so, compromise number three is, go without your flocks. Don't go far away, only the men, go without your flock. Now, what was Pharaoh doing? He was trying to offer a compromise. He was trying to make it appear as if he was submitting to God without submitting to God. Do we ever do that? We try to make it look like we're serving God, we're submitting to God, but we're really not submitted to God. Uh, really, compromise should be called disobedience. It was three days' journey. It was to be all the men, all the women all the children, and all the animals. That's what God said. And so any attempt to do anything than that would be disobedience. And so he had offered that, but now we come to chapter 12, and Pharaoh says, as you have said, do. Now, I want us to see here, because something is obviously different. This is the first time we find Pharaoh in this position, because twice he said... And he sends his messengers, his, as ye have said, in verse 31, as ye have said, in verse 32. I want you to notice here uh, what we do not find this time in Pharaoh's words. Number one, there is no qualification. No qualification. Uh, what I mean is no condition. Just like you said it. I'm not going to attempt to compromise I'm not going to ask you for something you haven't asked for. Uh, asked for. Uh, there is no qualification exactly what you said. There also, what we do not find in Pharaoh's word is there was no concessions needed on the part of Moses. No qualifications. No concession needed on the part of Moses. He says, as you have said. In other words, it seems to us here that that Pharaoh is no longer in charge. He says, whatever you want. Now, this is, this is strange to be in the position of Pharaoh knowing who he is. 
There, there's nothing that happens in Egypt without his say. Now, there's no one that has a position of power in Egypt without his permission. When Pharaoh speaks, his word is as a God. And the people do what he says. Perhaps this is the first time in his life when he says, as you have said. No qualifications, no concession needed on the part of Moses, but also notice there was only complete submission. Only complete submission. So here's what we learn in the end. In the end, Pharaoh submitted to all of God's demands. In the end, Pharaoh submitted to all of God's demands. Now, again, I do want to point out here, however, Pharaoh's submission did come too late in the sense of he didn't have to go through this. You see, there is always a cost when there is delay in obedience. There is always a cost when there is delay in obedience. The longer you put off obedience, it seems to us from this narrative here, the greater cost there will be. In the end, it would be the firstborn of Pharaoh. But there's another thing that we find here. Really, the last thing that, Mo, that Pharaoh says to them is this. Uh, notice at the end of verse 32. He says, Also take your flock and your herds, as ye have said, and be gone, and what? Bless me also? <laughs> now, as we have noted throughout our study of Exodus thus far, Pharaoh was looked upon as a god. Yet here, he is a man asking for God's blessing. This is only possible of a man who has realized, finally, that he is without power, that he is without any true divinity. As we have noted throughout the plagues, remember early on when the power of God was manifested. Uh, the sorcerers in Egypt tried to duplicate the plagues. It's interesting to note that Pharaoh never asked them to take away the plagues, for they could not. And so, time and time again, the people would appear to appeal to Pharaoh. Uh, at some point, they even say to Pharaoh, Don't you know that Egypt is destroyed? Uh, they, they are tired of Pharaoh. Why have you not done anything? Aren't you God? Uh, doesn't what you say go? Where's your authority? Where's your power? And so here when Pharaoh says, Well, uh, send word, they can go, do as you said, and please bless me. He is acknowledging here for the first time that he is powerless. And there is no divinity in him whatsoever. He is nothing before God. Completely at the mercy of God. You see this plague. We see that his spirit of arrogance and resistance gave way to, and I, I, I say a moment of humility and compliance because we know he's going to send his army after them later. But this tenth plague would, would cause his spirit of arrogance and resistance to give way to a moment of humility and compliance. But it's going to be short-lived. Isn't that interesting that I think that we can all maybe... See that in all of us? I know this gets personal here, but don't we see that in all of us? That God at times speaks to us and He brings us to a place and, and we find ourselves humbling ourselves and we find, if you would, the arrogance knocked out of us, the pride knocked out of us, and any resistance to God. And finally, we, we have a moment where we give way to humility and to compliance to God, but those moments often seem to be short-lived It's going to be short-lived for Pharaoh. And so, in verse 33, And the Egyptians were urgent upon the people, that they might send them out of the land in haste, 
For they said, We be all dead men. I want to stop here and make the following conclusion. Ask ourselves this question. What have we learned about God? Now I know we can learn some things about Moses and we can learn some things about the children of Israel. We, we've made some points throughout those plays. We, uh, we see we learn some things about uh, Pharaoh, about human nature and, and, and wickedness. But what do we learn about God is really what I, I want us to get to here. Uh, the Bible is, is about God revealing Himself to us. So what have we learned about God now that we come to the 10th plague? This is what we've learned about God. And I, I wrote down those things just by way of summary. I, I won't go to the scriptures, but we've expounded all throughout those last chapters. What have we learned about God? We've learned, first of all, that God's promises have been fulfilled. God made a number of promises, and He fulfilled those promises. Now, what does that, that it teaches us that, that God is... Uh, is trustworthy, that he can be trusted, he can be relied upon, and that God cannot lie. Cannot lie. And so we've learned here God's promises have been fulfilled. Here's the ten plague, and what God said would happen, happened. Uh, it's interesting today that we uh, think about how the Bible describes uh, humanity and what happens to uh, a nation or a people or an individual who reject God time and time again. And God says, if this happens, then this will happen to a society. And, and we see those things happening over and over again. And, and yet we still live in a humanity that, that look at what God has said and still reject what God has said, even though they see things that He has said being fulfilled before their very eyes. Those who reject God, according to Romans 1, God says that He gives them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Men with men, burning in their loss one towards another, doing that which is unseemly. They know the judgment of God, and yet they have pleasure in doing those things. Well, God gives them over. That's what God says, and by the way, we, we've seen that happen, haven't we not? That, that God says, you're going to live that way, this is what I'm going to do, this is what, where I'm going to bring you to. And so let's be reminded tonight that God's promises have been fulfilled, and that means that the promises that He has made that have not been fulfilled will be fulfilled, and it's not based on unreasonableness, it's completely based on what is reasonable, because God has always kept His Word. Always. So God's promises have been fulfilled. The second thing we learn about God is that God's mercy, or you can say His patience, or you can say His long-suffering has been demonstrated. As I mentioned, it took ten plagues. He could have just done one. Just wiped them out. Ten plagues. And every time after the plague... He sends, well, not every time, but most of the time he would send Moses. Are, are you going to let the people go now? Now that you've seen what God's done, now that you've experienced the judgment of God, are you going to submit yourself and repent under the mighty hand of God? No. Okay, then God, if you don't repent, God will send an, an, another one. Are you ready to repent? No. Okay, well, God will send another one. What do we learn from that? That God is merciful and patient and long-suffering. I, I, do not, I do not see a God uh, primarily of judgment here. I see the mercy of God. Uh, by the way, we come, if you study throughout the book of Revelation, and the, 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 the judgment of the world in the end, uh, isn't it interesting that throughout the book of Revelation, as you uh, have the, um, the, uh, the seals that are open, and the vials, and the trumpets sounding, that throughout the book of Revelation, as the judgment of God is being poured out on the world, by the way, it's going to be poured out on the world. The judgment of God is coming, and Jesus Christ is going to come to earth, and He's going to rule and reign for a thousand years. That's really going to happen, and we believe that, because His Word says it. But isn't it interesting that in the book of Revelation, in the prophecy, He says when judgment comes, God 
points to us that time and time again God will say, and they will not repent. Just like in Egypt. What does the book of Revelation communicate? Not just the judgment of God and the revelation of Christ, but the mercy, patience, and long-suffering of God to a rebellious humanity. That's what it communicates. We've also learned about God's power, that God's power here has been manifested. Remember what uh, Pharaoh said, I, Who is the Lord? Well, do you think he knows the Lord by now? at least in some measure, that God is Jehovah God. You remember what the counselors of Pharaoh said when they could not duplicate one of the plagues? They said, this is the finger of God. It's interesting that they would use the word finger as if they assuming that God has much more power than that. He's just using His finger. And so God's power has been manifested. We also learn that God's judgment has been justified. We come to the tenth plague. Could we not say here boldly that the judgment of God is justified? Can we not say here that, that God has the right to judge them after being so long-suffering and patient? There are limits to the, uh, to, the, to the mercy and to the long-suffering of God. And finally, His judgment comes down, the severest of judgment. But again, God is justified. God always judges according to righteousness. He always does what is right. We also learn that God's deliverance has been realized. God uh, delivered the people, notice, His way. His way. Isn't it interesting that God didn't bring about the deliverance through, all right, let's organize into groups. Let, uh, let's form a battalion over here, a hundred over here, and uh, let's all coordinate an attack upon the Egyptians. After all, we, we are millions. We can overcome them. We have the, the strength of working out in the field all that time. That's not the way that God uses for deliverance. What did He use for deliverance? The blood. His way. Which kind of reminds us, you remember when God asked Abraham to offer his son as a sacrifice. And Isaac says, well, here's the fire, here's the wood, but where's the lamb? You remember what Abraham said? He said, God will provide himself a lamb. God's deliverance has been realized. That's what we've learned about God. His way. We've also learned that God's freedom has been granted. Uh, these uh, children of Israel are going to be free. By the way, the freedom becomes the moment that the blood has been applied. That same night, immediately after the blood had been applied, that same night, they are told by Pharaoh, leave. They left so quickly that they didn't have time to take enough victuals and food for them for the journey. Now, I think that God did that purposefully because He's going to teach them uh, by providing for them daily, He's going to teach them about faith in the wilderness wanderings. But the point is here is that God's freedom has been granted. And here is what we learn finally is that God's service has been enabled. God's service has been enabled. Pastor, what do you mean by that? Well, you remember at the beginning, what was the request? Turn with me back to Exodus chapter 5. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 5, notice with me. Notice verse 1. And afterward Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. And they said, The God of the Hebrews hath met with us. Let us go, we pray thee, three days' journey into the desert, and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence and with the sword. Let us go. Let us be free. Free to do what? To serve God. To serve God. 
You know why God brought them out of Egyptian bondage? Not to free them. but to free them so that they might serve Him. Do we understand that? God saves us today not to, just to free us. He has saved us. He has freed us that we might serve Him. We know what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We know that salvation is by grace, through faith, alone. But then he says in the next verse, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We are not saved by works, but we certainly are saved unto good works. There are too many Christians today claiming their freedom who have no desire for service and they have no idea why they've been freed. They've been freed to serve God. I want you to turn with me as we conclude to Exodus chapter 19. A little later on, God gives the children of Israel a summary. <clears throat> Notice in Exodus 19 and verse 3, this is, if you remember, the theme of the book of Exodus. What is this book all about? Well, notice with me, And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel. Here it is, verse 4. Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. You see, what, 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 what was... Why did God bring them out of Egyptian bondage is so not that they run around and be free and, and do what you want. I'm your God and I've freed you. Now, now fly and, and be what you want to be and uh, accomplish your goals and, and your desires and, and uh, uh, go in the way that your heart takes you. No, he says, I've, I, 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 you saw what I did to the Egyptians and you saw how I, I bear you on eagles' wings and I, and, and I did all this to do what? To, to bring you unto myself. You see, God's intention in this is the, the entirety of the biblical revelation is that God's desire is that He wants to have communion and fellowship with man. That's the, whole, that's the, the point of salvation. Reconciliation with God. And now we can be called the children of God. The children of God. You see, the point of their deliverance is so that they might come to God. Freedom is not a freedom to run wild and to do what you want. Freedom is a freedom to come to God. Why? Because our sin separates us from God. But in Christ we can be reconciled and now we can serve God. And so we learn those things about God as a summary. Now we're going to go on and we're going to see their exit. How do they leave Egyptian bondage? But I hope that we come away from those ten plagues with at least learning those things. And let me give them to you and we'll be done. God's promises have been fulfilled. God's mercy has been demonstrated. God's power has been manifested. God's judgment has been justified. God's deliverance has been realized. God's freedom has been granted. And God's service has been enabled. These are the things that we've learned about God. Why does God do what He do? Why did He do this? To bring the people to himself. So let me ask you this. How is your relationship with God? How are you doing? You remember what Paul said? Towards the end of his life he says. Uh, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection. And the fellowship 
of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. The great pursuit of the Apostle Paul was, I want to know God more, even towards the end of his life. And so may that be our desire as well.